What does it mean to be prophetic criticizing and prophetic energizing? Or, what color was Jesus? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about black theology, racism without racists, and what it means to create communities that uh, run by a counter script or follow a counter narrative, and in so doing, become good news for the world. We'll talk about the, what it means that if we affirm love, it means we disavow something. My guest today on the podcast is Adam Clark. Adam teaches at Xavier in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'll have a bio on the blog associated with uh, this podcast. You can find out more about Adam there. When we began our conversation, I just let it roll. And at the very beginning, uh, rather than edit it out, I wanted you to hear uh, something of what goes on with faculties at some of these universities where some of my guests work. And in this particular case, we had begun talking about the ta Coates book, Between the World and Me. And that's kind of where we get in. So if you hear us talking about a book, a book review, uh, one that uh, Adam's going to be leading, that's the book reference. It's important because it comes out later in, in the show. And so I uh, hope this will be uh, uh, an important podcast for you. Today marks the 95th um, commemoration of the Tulsa Rates Riots in 1921. You'll find a few links to that also in the show notes or in the accompanying blog post. I really think it's important for us to uh, get a glimpse of some of the ways that that is revealing of what uh, Adam describes as racism without racists. If the, you find this podcast uh, helpful once you get to the end, uh, share it with your pastor, pastor friends, or those who are involved in pastoral work, or those who really are interested in the subject of uh, race and uh, religion, especially in particular Christianity and the idea of good news. You could help us out uh, to get noticed by going over to iTunes and give us a five-star rating. You could take a couple of extra minutes and leave a review. If you're worried about how quickly it shows up, they go through a review process themselves. So your review might not show up for a day or two, but that'd be okay. Certainly appreciate all of you who've gone over and done so. It's uh, helped us to get found and, and discovered as a resource for pastor theologians. So um, want to get right to it. So again, thanks for listening, and remember to share the podcast. Um, had a faculty discussion about it. I didn't finish the entire book. I'm supposed to lead the discussion. We're, we have one discussion this week and another yeah. discussion next week, and I'm supposed to be one of the leaders of the discussion uh, this week. But unfortunately, I just kind of like wanted the preview while I'm get, making my way through the book. Yeah, I I uh, I read it. It was uh, obviously very well written. Painful as a as a Anglo person to read someone's experience like that for sure. But uh, right. it, it okay. was a powerful, 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 powerful book. All right, so you so you did read it, okay? So oh yeah, you're farther ahead than I am. In terms yeah, of that. <laughs> yeah. I've got a friend who uh, is is like a religion reporter uh, here locally, and he got it and read it like in a couple of days. And he said, "You got to read this." So I ordered it, and I, I didn't read it as fast as he did, but I I got to it, and yeah, it was it, it was the subject of a couple of conversations. I don't, you know, the young friend. Um, we have different views on. Uh, the current realities of race in America and how that conversation goes. And, and I, I was able to use that kind of as an illustration that I just don't know that I, I, I was actually thinking about, you know, out at um, Claremont uh, hatchery and Dr. B said um, one time someone said to her, um, why don't you come tell my people? And she said, no, you tell them. You know, so so it was it was kind of like, um, yeah, so we've got to have the tools to do that if we've never been, you know, kind of in in that particular setting. And, and if, if we have been insulated or um, n- never aware of, the, of that particular reality by any you know, uh, of any other human being, um, w- then we need to t- take the steps to figure that out and, to you know, kind of know what that was like. Wow. OK. I've got 
I've got your um, outline. I, I listened to your talk several times. I made some notes, and then I pulled up a, a recent local um, senator's comments about racism, and I thought, well, just let's just talk for a little bit, and and uh, you can help me tell my people uh, <laughs> okay. in, 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 that, in that kind of okay. way. Um, I'll t- tell you a little bit about me just so maybe kind of help. Um, I was born in 63, and in the state of Oklahoma – uh, God, uh, Judge Bohannon um, uh, is the is the lo- is the state judge that ordered integration, and so I was in the third grade, and I had um, my teacher was African American, uh, Miss Craig, and I remember uh, at the end of the year they were going to do kind of a trial run uh, of of busing kids uh, from the, in our town, from the east side uh, over to the northwest side uh, of town. And so I remember, you know, the, the I, I remember specifically Miss Craig's emotions of the opportunity of an integrated classroom. And then when I hit the fifth grade, what happened to us is, is we moved from, from we were then kind of the bust, if you will. So we boarded a bus like right on the corner of my elementary school and we were bused over to the east side. And so I went to a school that was dubbed, uh, it was an elementary school at one time, but it was dubbed the Lincoln Fifth Year Center and it was over by our state capitol. And 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 um, if there's a divide, probably uh, that it was the, the racial divide in Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Um, east and west side. Um, I know other towns, it's north and south, but for us, it's it was east and west side. Right. And um, and so by the time I got into high school, um, I would say I went to a high school that was probably about 1,200 to 1,500 students. And I would say the, the, the racial mix was probably um, uh, 30... 70, 35, 65, could have been a little bit different because we, we had an increasing Asian population. But my personal experience was I played basketball, loved basketball, and all of my white friends told me that when I got to high school, I'd have to quit going out for basketball because, you know, a white guy wouldn't make the team. Mm. And um, and so I, I made my freshman team as one of three um, Anglo guys that made the freshman basketball team. By the time we get to high school, there were there were two guys that were um, Anglo guys that that were on the on the bench. One started uh, a, a guy I knew um, he was a senior started. Um, my mom tells the story. I'm, I hope I'm not boring no, no. you. My mom my, my mom tells the story that when I was in kindergarten, my real first my, my really my first teacher, Miss Booker, she was African American, mm-hmm. but my folks didn't. Um, we know they never talked about that. My, my grandpa uh, was a used car salesman, and he, he, I, I guess he just never. And, and I, I'm going to say this, and, and I'm going to know it's not true. Um, for his day, race was not an issue for him. Now that said, he was still on the upper side of that dynamic. So in retrospect, I look back and and I think, I bet he was, you know. Um, but but. Um, those who wailed the most at my grandpa's funeral were um, those um, uh, African-American people who maintained relationships with him for like 30 years who bought cars from him. And, and, and they, were most, they were the most visibly upset when my grandpa died. I remember it distinctly at Little Baptist Church in Oklahoma City. But, but, back to, but, but my mom said I'd come home and I would talk about this boy in class and um, they didn't have any idea who I was talking about. You know, they they I, they couldn't they didn't understand me. And uh, then they went for uh, teachers meeting, and um, they understood um, because Miss Booker had a, a a little different dialectic, uh, you know, uh, um, uh, accent, and I was just mimicking her accent when she was talking about my good friend. I didn't. I didn't know Miss Booker was black, um, but I have to, you know, confess. Like hopefully every other white person would, we learned what black was, and when you learn about that from the upper side, then you know it has all the accompanying socialization that uh, you deplore when you get older. 
uh, if you if you realize how bad how bad all that was. But that's just a little bit about me. I, I, I pastor a, um, an Anglo church in a suburb that where its history is that people are moving away from the city for from for uh, integration purposes and. And so now we're pro- probably um, mostly Native Americans out here, and 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 Anglo's um, are are kind of the the racial dynamic where I live. I I came and and the church I was in in Texas was about sixty forty uh, in its racial uh, makeup, uh, white to white to African American, and and I told people I said I, we need to start inviting some of our friends of color to move out here, and uh, they looked at me like I had a third eyeball. <laughs> but, okay. Uh, so that, so that's a little bit, and so I've been deeply interested just from the standpoint of these conversations I have with these these younger pastors who seem to think that racism has gone away. So you you had um, I can't remember if you used the line in your talk about um, racism without racists. Yeah, that's that's from a that's from a book. Um, okay, it's talk it's talking about colorblind racism and, oh, okay. and talking about the transformation from. Racism being color conscious, meaning um, kind of apartheid and segregation, where you had whites only color signs, toward kind of contemporary racism, which is a color blind racism. And the difference is really um, color blind racism. Well, color, color, color conscious racism, of course, is just explicit racial laws, like racism as a policy codified. Color blind racism is a form of racism that ignores, minimizes, or explains away racial disparities. So they acknowledge that that color is bad, and they claim to treat everybody independent and fairly, but when you look at the social misery index, you see that it's color-coded, right? In almost every index, in terms of poverty, in terms of health disparities, in terms of educational, you see this type of gradation. And you know that if racism did not form a major factor in American society, then misery would be equally distributed throughout yes. the communities. But the fact that it's so yes. concentrated in black community uh, um, gives you an empirical indication that racism is still a large part of our social makeup, right? So yeah. that's what we talk about. Colorblind racism allows whites to safeguard racial interests without sounding racism. It's racist, excuse mm-hmm. me. So yeah. that's what makes our current situation so frustrating because even people who won't say the N-word or won't say anything explicit still are safeguarding racial interest. And most of the time because they believe they have a minimal, minimalist definition or a deflationary definition of racism where racism is only an individual act of meanness and not a system or an institution that confers dominance and privilege without merit. Yeah, two things came to mind. You know, we were going to uh, try this, um, well, a month ago or so. So right around Easter, in fact, I was going to save the image and, um, and, and get your reaction, but it seems like what you're describing is there was a meme going around um, around Easter where there was this, uh, you know, picture of, of Jesus toting a cross, and it had all lives matter. Right. You know, I think I, yeah, I think I saw that. Yeah. So that would be that would be what you're describing as a minimizing, right, of color. Yeah. That would that yeah. would be kind of a, a, a an illustration, yeah. so that if someone's listening, they they try to put that together, or or it's the same sort of. Um, um, challenge to the Black Lives Matter movement by just saying, come on, can't, don't we know all lives matter? And, and it's like, right. you know yeah. what I mean? I mean, I, I mean, I would seem that that would be kind of the the, the minimizing you're talking about, the, the sort of thing that, that um, uh, collapses all social identifiers into to one. And then, so I think they don't understand that we would have to say, well, then all people are poor. Right. It's like going to a, all, you know, a breast cancer run and saying all diseases matter, not just breast exactly. cancer. Exactly. Right? Exactly. So, Excellent. So, I mean, that, that's the kind of rhetorical play that goes on. And black, you know, Black Lives Matter is saying all lives matter. It just comes in a context where the practice is not that all lives matter, right? Like, for example, I saw talking about a meme that, you know, George Zimmerman's gun was bought for like over $100,000, but 
when yes. you looked at the um, who were the uh, kindergarten children that were slaughtered in um, Connecticut? Um, oh, at uh, um, oh. the elementary school. Something town. Uh, um, yes, yes, you know I know what you're talking about. Right. But, I, you yeah, know, if yeah, someone yeah. tried to sell the gun <laughs> of the right. assassination of those kids, nobody would right. buy it. Right? Right. right. <laughs> this exactly. is the very point. Like, that would be seen as disgusting, yes. morally reprehensible, yes. over the top. But George Zimmerman's gun is worth over $100,000. Right. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was, that was yeah, horrible. Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, if, if, I think we're thinking about Newtown, yeah. uh, the shooting in Newtown, and and you're right. You're absolutely right. Nobody would no nobody would have thought that a good idea to auction <laughs> off uh, uh, those it weapons. It would yeah. not be possible. No, it would it wouldn't at all. You know, um, uh, along along those lines, the uh, um, it was it was that meme that came to mind as you were describing that, and then um, uh, when we talk about minimizing. Um, I, I, I know one of our local state senators. Actually, he's a U.S. senator now. I've known him for a long time. But here in Oklahoma, we're there. You know, it's always awkward to me. Uh, you know, celebrating um, a negative. You know what I mean? So, like the it, it's 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 an ironic description. So, uh, celebrating uh, Martin Luther King's assassination. Is is an is is an ironic uh, use of the term celebrate, but here in Oklahoma, we are celebrating um, the 95th anniversary of the Tulsa race riots, and um, in uh, in what's known as um, Greenwood, and in that area, it was known as the Black Wall Street, and and so um, I. I saw this uh, yesterday. No one, I was kind of scouting around for something kind of current to tie into some of the themes that, that, that we were going to talk about. And I, I, clipped the, uh, I clipped the article out of our, our local paper. And, and so the senator was asked um, how much racism he encounters in Oklahoma. And, and here's his reply. I, I don't encounter a lot, but I do encounter some. When I talk to folks in the African-American community and the Latino community, they still feel it. And so the challenge that I have is making sure every opportunity really is there. Now, I'm not sure where that last sentence comes from. It seems to be a bit out of place. But if you caught that like I did, it was like, so you're asking an Anglo about how racism is experienced in, in, in Oklahoma. Right. yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it seems the same thing on the opposite right. side. You know, if we're minimize, it's another way to minimize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So why not ask? Why not ask? Um, you know, the better person would have been uh, a local state senator, um, uh, African American pastor that I know, um, George. Uh, and and George is. Um, I've worked with George on some education initiatives, and um, he's retired pastor now, and he's a state senator and uh, a representative. I'm. I, I'm trying to remember. Either way, that would have been someone you right. asked. And even the idea of racism being just a feeling also. I mean, there, there exactly. are numerous data points. I mean, there's, this is not just something that is constituted by in someone's head or whether they feel. There are data points that you could actually, yeah. you know, um, marshal together that could actually determine this with, uh, independent of our feelings, right? Like the social misery exactly. index, exactly like I just right. gave you yes. in terms of that. Yes. I mean, that to me is a much more um, material yes. um, way of trying to go about attacking racism. I mean, because racism does function at multiple levels. It, there is a certain type of feeling or a hostile sure. atmosphere and that type of thing. So there's psychic, but sure. it's such a... It, it, but it also functions independently of our actions, right? Like we talk about it as yes. systemic. You're saying that it's not just people with white sheets over their head. It's not just white right. organized white supremacist groups or that do these type of, you know, Dylan Roof kind of acts that yes. almost the entire yes. American public could find unacceptable. It's, it's really like an ecology, um, in terms right. of its deep interwovenness into the fabric of American society. And 
our actions can either weaken or reinforce it, right? That's how we should think yes, about it. Yes. That it's something that's part yes. of that. It's almost like the oxygen, the atmosphere that are mm-hmm. that we could either kind of repel or breathe in. And so it's much more subtle and pervasive than the average person thinks, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think that one of the things I've noticed is that on the uh, on the conservative side of those conversations, it's always localized to, to the individual. Yeah. So a person can, like, you know, like when we started drawing the distinction between um, racism without racists. So I'm, I'm not a racist, and that's the chief concern. I'm not, you know. But we, we, don't, we don't look uh, at the entire makeup, as you describe it, the systems that are in play, the structures that have been wired into the fabric of our social experience, the social contract and such. That, that uh, I like your line, you know, um, the, the way to counter it is, is to do anything that undermines, uh, I forgot exactly the word you used, but anything that undermines the realities of racism are the steps we ought to take to counter That's right. racism. That's right. Yeah. yeah. You've got to, yeah. That, that, you know, and another thing that people assume is only a black issue, but that as if race doesn't affect whites, the way whites constitute themselves. Um, exactly. So we don't dis- we don't discuss the effects of racism or white supremacy on how white people see themselves. So yeah. you know what what we uh, probably a more helpful formula would be looking at black subordination and white privilege, right? The way they kind of mm. function in tandem mm. with yes. each other. How blacks are subordinated yes. and whites are privileged, and that's why the Ta-Nehisi Coates book is, becomes effective because it helps to see. Like one of the things in terms of it, I don't know if you had this on. We talked about this probably earlier before you started recording the broadcast. But the the Ta-Nehisi Coates books, Between the World and Me, one of the things I thought was helpful is that he described the idea of of a lot of times when people look at Jim Crow laws, they look at it just as racial separation. But it, actually, a better concept to use is plunder how you're plundering, because mm, you're yes. separating the community in order to plunder, to extract its resources, its wealth. Well, like, wow. we you're talking about Tulsa, Oklahoma, like that, that thing. That's like actually yeah. like leveling in a community and then erasing intergenerational wealth that could be transferred. So it's not just about just whites and blacks can't sit together. It's about plundering an entire community of people in terms of that. Yeah. And I think that doesn't really get when you talk about the distinctiveness of African-American oppression as opposed to European immigrant kind of discrimination of not being able to go to certain social clubs or be in certain place, like that's the distinctiveness of it, that apart, yeah. that racial apartheid or Jim Crow laws and slavery plundered a community and not just separated yes. them from each other. Yes. Wow. Wow. Plunder. That's, that's, that's going to, that's going to be one I, I hang on to. That, that's a fantastic uh, opening up to some ways of looking at, at that that I've never heard anybody else kind of describe in that way. Uh, so that's, that's incredibly helpful. You know, we are coming at this um, from the standpoint of uh, really my interest in, in wanting to chat with you was hearing your, your talk at um, the Enfolding Conference. And... and uh, um, you know, here we've got uh, uh, some Christian folks gathering, and we're, we're talking about a variety of subjects. And, and this is this is, and we're talking about the good news. And and you had a line that, um, well, you had many of them. I, I didn't have enough room to write them all down. Um, but you you talked about um, uh, the good news um, as an interruption. And and so if if we can identify uh, the issue of racism from different vantage points, like utilizing the term or the imagery of plundering and how we talk about color coded and how we, how we kind of were helping um, to kind of open up all the ways that that's really at work in our culture. And then we come in to say, uh, but there's good news and we've got to find a way for that to be good news. And so you were answering the question, what's God's good news for our world in this particular context? And 
you characterized good news as a as an interruption. I think you also referred to it as the uh, prophetic um, uh, criticizing. Mm-hmm. Is, it, is that is, yes? Is that... Yes, I used actually that's a Walter Brueggemann's. I used his idea of prophetic criticizing and prophetic energizing. Right, like mm-hmm. the good news is something that interrupts our daily the daily lives of of hurt and broken people. Um, uh, and, 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 you know, it interrupts and disrupts, meaning that it, it disturbs mm-hmm. our, 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 our kind of normal, ordinary sense of the world and really brings us, um, what's a good way of kind of, of, of saying, it's, 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 it brings us something unexpected. So much of what we do uh, uh, in terms mm. of religion becomes ritualistic and routine. And pretty mm-hmm. much, I would say, the message of the New Testament is that God comes in the most unexpected ways, and it kind of disrupts mm-hmm. our, our, our lives. It's like when I'm mm-hmm. at the car and I'm like maybe on my phone doing something like that, and someone knocks on my car window and wants like a quarter. And I'm like, get out of here. What are you doing? Like, I'm like <laughs> totally into my phone or something like that. Like, that's how God comes. Right. Like, it's kind of like a bother. Even the, even the yeah. idea of the kingdom of God is a mustard seed. Like, it wasn't like a rose, you know, a bed of roses or, you know, um, you know some pretty flower. It was like a mustard right. seed, which is an ugly kind of thing, right? Very. So the metaphors of the New Testament seem to me really clear that this is something that is not going to be some type of, or you know, some ornate thing that kind of evolved. It's going to be something that's disruptive and interruptive. And it's going to make most of us uncomfortable. Yeah. So when you, when you undertake um, in the classroom, so you're at, Z- at yes, Xavier. Yes, Xavier University right? in Cincinnati, Ohio. Yes. And, and, uh, and so when you're communicating these things in the classroom and you're, 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 you're witnessing the responses. I'm assuming that it's a diverse classroom. Yeah, uh, most of the time, yes. Yeah, so um, what, what are the responses you, you observe as, as the students are um, picking up uh, the ways you open up a better understanding of the issue of race in our country in connection with, say, uh, an understanding of, of the way the good news comes as a disruption? Wow, that's a good question. Um, well, they're, they're shocked. They're surprised. They've never heard it that way. Um, you know, most of them find the information... Well, most of them, first of all, most people don't critically think about black history and black culture in the first place. And they don't crit- critically think about religion either. So it's two different ways. Right. So to combine them is quite an experience for most students. Um, so in my black theology courses, which is probably my, you know, my most highly regarded course, um, students generally... Um, I'm trying to think of some of the feedback because I usually do a ritual at the end of the class. Like, what's the what's the best? You know, usually, what are they going to take away from the class, and how are they going to carry it into their their other type of vocations? And I think just you know, you know, other than like kind of like I, I do a lot of kind of uh, small group work, like them getting to know each other, mm-hmm. the kind of community community building work. But I think just really the practice of critically thinking about both American culture and the Christian gospel in and of themselves, looking at the gospel from below. I think just viewing it as something that is a God from the underside, to take the idea of a God from the underside very seriously is a new thing for students. But it fits in so well because Xavier is a is a Jesuit school that really talks about social justice as the kind of a primary face of what the Christian faith should be about. Um, I think looking at the gospel, a God of the underside from the black experience is something they really take with them um, and kind of they're able to kind of 
uh, use that as an anchoring point for the rest of their, um, um, I guess, educational experience here at Xavier. Hmm. Yeah. Well, while we're on that, I mean, I know sometimes, well, you know, the, one of the last things maybe you ask somebody you're on with is, okay, so can you recommend something? But it seems like a good time to pause and say, okay, well, on that, on that note, um, if someone right now is sitting here listening and going, okay, I, I need to know what I, what could I read? So, um, what would, what would be some suggestions you would make? Um, I'm, I know we've, we've talked about ta Coates book, but if we're going to talk black theology, um, or a text that you would find, um, uh, one you would recommend, say a couple of titles, what would be a couple of titles you'd recommend to someone who this might, this whole conversation might be a bit eye opening, might be new. Um, what, what would you, what would you recommend? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, probably James Cohn's book, on. Uh, Martin Malcolm in America might be a good place mm-hmm. to start because it really talks mm-hmm. about kind of the twin pillars because black theology begins with the question, what does it mean to be black and what, it mean, what does it mean to be Christian? The blackness mm-hmm. is defined by Malcolm X and the Christianness is defined by Martin Luther King. And I think Cone's kind of writing on those two historical figures um, carves out you know, the kind of basis of where black theology is. And I think the, the reason why I recommend that book for most people, because it's very accessible and you're learning about two historic figures that kind of shape a, a lot of the thinking um, in kind of contemporary black uh, progressive thought, I should say, progressive thought. I think that might be a good place to start. But in terms of black theology, but it's not about black theology proper. Um, I use for my people, um, James Cone's book for my people in my class about kind of mm-hmm. people who are m- more theologically orientated. It can, it's, 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 a, it's an older book. It's very accessible and it kind of, you know, there's been much more work for people who are more academically inclined or keep in touch with the kind of theological literature. I would recommend something different. But if you're just starting, you're a lay person, that might be a good place to start. Um, what would you recommend to say pastors? Pastors. Okay. That's a, that's a good question. Um, maybe the cross and the lynching tree. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think that's probably a, that's, a, that's a really good place in, for, with James Cone. Um, uh, Dolores Williams, um, Sisters in the Wilderness, in terms of womanist mm-hmm. thought. Um, uh, those are kind of... A, to, the two, okay. two, two entry points into the larger discourse of black theology. Well, while we're on that subject, because um, at the same time that we would um, find a way to minimize by the using the term all lives matter to make, you know, to kind of hide the 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 color coding that that goes on and as you described it evidenced in the misery index some people are are may need to hear some of my pastor friends who will listen need to hear that the location from which you do your theology matters so that when you have referenced uh, black theology, and some of them are go like, "Well, I just read theology," right, and yeah. we go, "Well, but, but you you don't really just read theology. Right. You're number one. You're you're generally reading white dead guys. Um, number two, um, you're um, reading of those that have written those that already reinforce your prior commitments, right." And and so then to, um, it's not it's not what's the word and then to um, just collapse all theology into one um, large category uh, misses those particular uh, the way we the way we have uh, learned for ourselves say post 
masters, even postgraduate, where we go select what we're going to read, where we're not told what to read. So we always are pulling from the same place on the right, shelf. Right, yeah. Well, social location matters. For, for, that, for that kind of conversation, probably God of the Oppressed is the best book because it talks about the sociology of knowledge, how we come to know oh. things. Like even religious knowledge is socially constructed, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, for, but in terms of kind of looking at that, there's a lot of times where, you know, there's, when, um, James Cone didn't tell me that, this, but uh, another professor on, um, in, um, at Union, when I, when I studied at Union Theological Seminary, he told me when James Cone first came to Union, and they used to have, you know, all these kind of faculty speak outs where people talked about their various specialty disciplines in terms of that, mm-hmm. they said, he would say, Professor X, is coming to talk about feminist theology. And this person is talking about neo-Orthodox theology. And Cohn's going to talk about black theology. And I'm going to talk about Christian theology. (laughs) 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 Wow. So the idea, and this really is kind of a function of privilege, right? The idea that you don't have to actually have a qualifier on Euro-American theology that it speaks in universal voice is the very problem where we talk about white lives matter, right? Or all lives matter in terms of that. Yes. The idea, so the fact that to designate, just like, or for example, if I say, um, we're going to talk about black Jesus or we're going to talk about the real Jesus, right? Like the fact we have to designate these things in terms of with racial qualifiers is problematic in and of itself, right? Type of categories. It talks about, and this is where you talk about how white supremacy, the context is tainted, how the very, uh, very context of knowledge is tainted, that we have to use qualifiers because we're doing a corrective within theology, that it's been, that epistemologically, that is how we come to know something has been structured by Anglo-American realities, that to even introduce something different, we have to use a qualifier to introduce that, right? So that's part of the struggle in terms of what intellectuals have to deal with. So I'm trying to really talk about, so I'll give you an example of what I use in class. When I ask my class, what color was Jesus? Most students, black and white, will say, well, he's olive colored, right? So I usually joke with them. I say, is he black olive or green olive? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Awesome. (laughs) Because really, olive color, I mean, maybe it's accurate, maybe it's not, but it's not like part of the American classification of system of race. So so even then, they're doing something different, but... If he was yes. actually in the United States, what would we call Jesus and that type of thing versus his depiction? So we get these type of conversations in the class about that. Wow. So part of like even talking about or introducing, that's how serious the thing is, is that we're talking about the structure of knowing. And it's very yes. difficult to kind of make that type of challenge. So when we're talking about race, we always think of it as or Christians, especially evangelicals, tend to think of it as something in the heart but not as the structure of how we come to know things. And that's what, like, the, that's what the intellectual community is fighting this battle. And it may look kind of ugly or awkward, but that's because the discipline has been tainted. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, that just, and, that, and that just shows up while that's the battle in the intellectual community, there are just so many ways that actually shows up um, in the in the day to day struggle or wrestling with those realities. So you have a conversation with again a, a young fellow who wants to say, "Well, you know, racism's really not a thing anymore." Mm-hmm. And I'm like, "Like, how, how did how, how where where do you come up with the idea that it's not a thing anymore?" Right, right, you know, right. but but that just shows how much work has got to be done when we are unfamiliar with the systems, the plundering, as you described it, that has taken place, and then its consequent realities. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, well, that's uh, where the, the ideology of colorblindness, I mean, after King, it was unpopular to use the term. Well, here's why conservatives like King. I mean, conservatives use King because they want to talk about it's not the content of your, it's not the color of your skin, it's the content of your character. So therefore, right. any reference to race in anything is seen as racist, right? So to even talk about black right. as a theology, they would find as unacceptable or as dividing the body of Christ, or as mm-hmm. something that would be heretical or anathema to actually building Christian community because you're inserting blackness into Christianity in terms of that. And that's part of like the intellectual kind of trick that's going on here, um, yes. where they think there's a neutral context in which Christian faith operates, as mm-hmm. if it's not very, as if that in the West, that race is baked in to the very mixture mm-hmm. of Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Like it's baked yeah. into the batter, right, yeah. of, of the modern yeah. West. So you can't just sit there and separate it out. So we're here with kind mm-hmm. of a battering ram or like ice pick trying to chip away at certain structural forms of oppression that are baked into the very mixture, right? Wow. And sometimes, and when I said it looks, sometimes it looks ugly or awkward, I'm talking about the struggle against it because it comes at so sure. many different le- levels of assault, in terms yeah. of that. So, so it, in terms of, and I think there are a lot of well-meaning Christians who, um, evangelicals or conservative Christians who really do um, generally desire, have a heart for reconciliation. You know? yes. But the intellectual tools they're equipped with under-prepare uh, under them for the fight mm. or doesn't really um, adequately index how deeply saturated our context has been by white supremacy. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, no doubt. You make a you you make a couple of um, helpful moves when you were given your talk. Um, Why you out there in L.A.? Are, are you, you, there? you broke up a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you you uh, you made a couple of uh, of interesting. Um, I don't know if it'd be affirmations, although I, I think they were when, when in the context of your talk um, out at the hatchery, you were talking about, um, you know, God's, uh, what is God's good news for the world in this particular context? You talked about love. And uh, you, you, you said this, to yeah. affirm love, reject something. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. And so if we, if we, we can't, we can't stop here we, we've got another maybe 20 minutes if you if you'll give that to me but sure. but we've we've got we, we've we've got some component parts that we've pulled away hopefully to at least give an introductory move for pastors and those who will listen to think maybe better about this subject some things to read some challenges about how the the gospel is a disruption and interruption but but we want to we, we want to also give some affirmation that there is there is a reconciling way forward and and so when you make this statement uh, when you to affirm love re, uh, means to reject something um, I think I, I took a note it scandalizes and untames right right well so so describe that a little bit what, what when you're when you kind of use that at to affirm love and 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 what follows out from that is okay let's move this direction and here's what you need to be prepared for all right you you you, you kind of broke up a little bit so but I think I understand the question um what, okay. when, when when I remember talking about that love I was talking about the beginnings of black theology where love was a moral requirement for, was love seen was the moral requirement for Christian faith, basically, mm. following King and others at the time. But what that did was conceal what we call asymmetric power relations, or it was a mask for unjust power, so that all you had to do was go out and let's love everybody, that type of thing. But there were unjust power relations and, organ, and, and, and hierarchies that were not addressed by simply loving one's neighbor, from heart mm-hmm. to heart or from soul to soul because it didn't mm-hmm. take into the fact the context in which the neighbor was coming out of or the structure that neighbor was actually living in. So the question was, how do we define love by liberation theologians? What are the aims, the imperatives, the forms, the priorities of love? 
How does love function within the fabric of our cultural, sociocultural, political, economic, ecological relations? And how is love a revolutionary drive for transformation? And then what does love actually tear down and exclude, right? Like love is not just an affirmation. It's also a, a rejection of something. So if I love you, right, if I, if I love good, then I'm going to reject evil, right? If I love liberation, I'm going to reject oppression, Right? So anything that oppresses or binds you, if I love freedom, I'm going to reject any type of bondage. Right? Mm-hmm. So that's what the affirmation of love was really trying to do. But, it's, but the thing about the gospel is that the love wasn't just this type of abstract universalism. It was a love that scandalizes. Right? A love that's dangerous and undomesticated, untamed. And that's what was revolutionary about the love. Right. So that's where it was the God of the underside, that the God of the underside was loving people that the world deemed unnecessary or disposable. (laughs) Right. This type of disposable people. That's where God's love was. That was the stone that the builders rejected. Right. Mm. That's going to Mm. be the center stone in the new kingdom that's being built, the counter kingdom. Right. So. That's yeah. where the kind of liberationist orientation was. It wasn't that other people can't love. It's that there's a certain focus to the love that was counter to what the world said it was. And that became the building block for the future. So the question of the good news, I said, it's living the future of love now. How do we live the future of love now? That's in mm-hmm. being in solidarity with the underside. Yeah, and and you gave an illustration of uh, of Jubilee, yeah. and you talked about the fact that, um, and, th- and this kind of tends toward economics in the sense that um, in a consumerist uh, environment, uh, scarcity is the motivation. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, that's right. And that's, that's that's ironic, isn't <laughs> right. it? I mean, I mean. I mean, you you know, you go to a you go to a car dealership, and there are. are hundreds of cars you you go to a a a big box store and there are just countless numbers of items you know replicated on the shelves but at at its heart uh to drive someone to go by is the fear that it's going to be gone yeah yeah well you know it, it, it it even kind of i abstracted that to say that consumerism which is the ideology that kind of couches the scarcity it's not, just, it's not just a mode of thought. It's actually a religion in and of itself. Perhaps the most dominant yes. religion, right? Like yes. you have, I think there's like, what, 6 billion Christians and 4 billion Muslims, but there's probably more, well, actually, I'm using those numbers wrongly because there's not that many yeah. people, but I talked about the, the, the kind of numbers of Christians, the numbers of Muslims, but there's more consumerists than both of them, <laughs> Right? Yes. That religion yes. is the biggest yes. kind of religious system because it's able that its, its values mm-hmm. um, are the most widespread, and I'm talking about globally, in the world. Right. Right? So we go from like, not just a market economy, but a market society, meaning that everything is organized. And it has certain types of, there's a market God, right? Which is kind of a modern deity. And it's enshrouded in kind of mystery and reverence. Why these kind of financial priests that come out and every day tell you Mm -hmm. what's going on in the market. There's all this type (laughs) of thing. It has a certain type of inner meaning of history where things go right and wrong. There's a narrative of the fall (laughs) in terms of that. And there's certain types of attributes in terms of its omnipotence. It defines what's real. Um, Mm, It has the power to make something out of nothingness, right? Like everything can be bought. Everything has a price. Air, water, land, bodies, souls, minds. Everything has a price. It's omnipresent, you know, in terms of most religions are attached to a certain place, like a land mass or something mm-hmm. like that. But the, the, the market God is, it, it prefers like a whole homogenized global culture where just being attached to one particular location is inconvenient, 
right? So it's, it's, it's perfect for this kind of globalized world. And you can even be excommunicated out of like this kind of consumerism. Look at North Korea or, or the, right. the, the kind of things that were on Iran. And it also has, you know, modes of transubstantiation where like, you know, <laughs> where instead of like wine and bread being vehicles for the holy, like land becomes real estate, right? Like sick yes, mother earth yes. becomes like a real estate venture. So consumerism yes. functions as a kind of the modern religious ideas and it has certain scripts for our, ourselves. So we follow mm. these scripts where human beings are transformed into self-interested individuals whose purpose are to compete with others to accumulate possessions and maximize pleasure, right? Mm, so that takes yeah, us out. Right. So, there's, so in those scripts, there's no necessity for us to love our neighbors, right? The idea right. is to actually maximize our profit and pleasure. So that becomes our dominant religious mode, or if Christianity subordinates itself to that, there's no, there's no need to live into the future. There's no need to try to build the kingdom together. together. Right. So that Christianity has to function as a counter-narrative to that, right, to the dominant narrative of our times. And that's where Christianity needs to kind of, uh, you know, convert it, remake itself in a way that it gets out of kind of an establishment discourse, it becomes like a discourse for the marginalized. And that's where actually uh, resources like you described and others that are out there where you're actually now uh, doing or listening, rather, uh, as theology is done from the underside. You you use the phrase from below. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I think that that is a, um, a helpful uh, a description, uh, because we tend to, at least conservatives, I think, tend to minimize the below out of fear that somehow they're going to bring God down, and 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 instead of really grappling with the realities that he he, you know, if we talk about if we take incarnation seriously, uh, there there is really a coming into the underside. You know, there is taking up residence in the underside. Oh. And so it's kind of a weird fear to say that you 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 have to start with theology in, in some sort of aggrandized place mm-hmm. where um, I, I like to tell our folks and try to undermine some of the the, the things that go on and, and that say that you know what's funny is 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 since the late eighteen hundreds um, a, a, a certain group of Christians have been doing everything they can to look forward to getting out of here by celebrating a story where God did everything to get into here. <laughs> and so, and so, in that way, that's an that you know, in in an odd maybe sort of way that that is actually coming at it from the underside. Yeah, I agree. I mean that that's that's why Christians, especially, I mean Jesus himself. I mean, what I try to tell my class is that, look, if we have the chance to be born into any existence in human history, most of us would choose to be richer than we actually are, to be better looking than we actually are. I mean, if Jesus was born into a palace with chariots and wealth and opulence, that would be one thing. But here you have a story about a guy who's born in a manger with, you know, (laughs) feces and urine and bad smells and that kind of thing to these kind of, you know, anonymous parents and that kind of thing. So, I mean, that that says something about God's choice, right? So that's where the underside, that God did not choose. It's not like Sahartama, who becomes the Buddha, who comes from this kind of really important place, but this is like something about God chooses this in all of human history. And that needs to be taken serious as a theological point. Absolutely. Right? And that shows about where no, Christians should be located if God chooses that kind of thing as, as the point of the incarnation. Yeah. It just seems to open up a whole range of, of, of possibilities if you can, you know, open up yourself to, to looking at uh, the world from a different lens so that you uh, see the various ways you participate 
in those systems and structures that actually undermine that good news. And if you're willing to kind of enter into that, then when you are emphasizing that um, that's the future of God, God's love now, then there then becomes some sort of um, uh, energizing reservoir that says, okay, now what? And we can't limit it. Now what? Right. Uh, we look around us and say, okay, now we, we look for those places. Right, and, and, and that's where churches, for the pastors who are listening, should be contrast communities, right, where we actually yes. do try. Because the church should not be reflective of the world, and the church should be a contrast community of what's going on there. So they should be experiments and how that actually works in our society, in our local yes. location right now. So yes. they should be communities that anticipate the kind of future of God's love, right? They prefigure that as best as we can. They're home places where we can reimagine worlds and reorder possibilities and safe spaces where people are open to take creative risks. And those are what the good churches are really trying to do. Yeah, yeah, good. And Adam, this has been fun. Okay, yes, yes, indeed. Uh, This is... This has been really good. Is there something that, like, if you were, if there was something I would, you would have thought maybe we had to talked about or I would have asked from maybe your presentation or something else that maybe that really is, you know, I, when I sent that email, it was like, so what else has kind of got you really kind of amped up? What, what, it, what, what, what would be, you know, want something that, that, that you'd want maybe to, to say that we haven't kind of looked at? Um, well, thinking about out loud, I guess, you know, I'm in a lot of groups and, what I'm starting to see, and, and there's a lot of anxiety about Donald Trump and what's happening with our country, and I, I always see Donald Trump as not so much as not a cause but a symptom of what's going on. Yes, I agree. So part of the thing is I think that people who are pastors or religious professionals should really try to think about is what is the new framing story that we need to articulate mm. it to go forward with? Obviously, we're in a place where the old stories are really collapsing or they're not really capturing where our moment is. So now we're in this type of uh, situation where we have many different stories that are coming out, but not one dominant story. In the 60s, it was Beloved Community, right, with Martin Luther King. That was a framing story where we could fund our interests. And maybe we need to reinvigorate that idea and try to say what does that mean in 2016 2017 but I think that churches have the resources to really not so much I think they're uniquely positioned to really come out with a counter script or a counter framing Mm. story to what the world is Mm. doing in terms of not just working for self-interest and material attainment but a new way we could organize our moral cultural and political lives through stories and we ought to kind of use our our the resources from our tradition to really put forward a new story so that the world can have um a kind of reinvigorated hope and i hope that anybody listening to this would try to really use their spaces to try to work and that might not look the same in deep in every place like you know I don't have a great idea of how it should look, but one thing I think we ought to start with is repentance, right? Like when, oh, the, yes. when the, Jesus' first sermons was repent, the kingdom of God is here, right? But first there was a, a deep repentance <laughs> before turning. Yes. And, and that's not necessarily feeling all guilt struck and that kind of thing, but that's just an acknowledgement that we're caught in certain systems of power that is structures that are deeply sinful, that are against the good, and just to acknowledge Mm -hmm. that and turn away from those and try to reimagine a new way. That's what discipleship was. Discipleship is learning a way of life, right? So we need to be Mm -hmm. discipled in a way that's outside the consumer system and more toward the religion of Jesus, right? Which was really trying to talk about new possibilities for our world. So I hope yeah. that we would use our ways to try to embody a new story that gives hope to our world. Oh, fantastic. Hey, uh, if someone wanted to kind of uh, keep track of maybe some things you're thinking or uh, um, 
writing? Is there a place they can find uh, that? Oh, wow. Uh, geez. You, you can follow me on social media. I haven't organized all the stuff that I've written and that type of thing, but I, I, I do have my thoughts. I have a Twitter account, a Facebook account, and an Instagram account, and my... Okay. Oh, geez. Well, I can't even remember. My, I always forget my... I'll, I'll put them out okay. there. I, I, I follow you. I'll put them out okay. there for them. Okay. When this goes I can't up. remember because yeah. they're slightly different names. Like they kind of... But they all have the... Adam Clark is the name. And... But they... You know, they're... The, some of the... Uh, uh, I guess the, the lettering's a little different on those accounts. Right. Especially if someone's already got Adam Clark, right? right? Exactly. I mean, that's how, that's how exactly. that works. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Adam, I want to say a, a great big thank you. And uh, it was great to meet you in March. It's good to have this conversation. And and maybe down the line, uh, we'll get to do this again, and you can help me tell my people. Uh, let's, let's do a better job at, at being aware and alert um, to the ways that we can, uh, as you said, build these counter communities with a counter script that can envision uh, greater possibilities for our world. I enjoyed it, Todd, please. And anytime, anytime yeah. I want to talk, I'll be available. Yeah, that's great, man. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks for listening. This has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, a podcast for the pastor theologian. Pathological is an affiliate podcast with the Roundtable Media Group. If you'd like to advertise with Roundtable Media Group, you can email me at todd at roundtablemediagroup.com. We are growing a group of podcasts. We have podcasts that are affiliate podcasts. We have podcasts that we're producing. Together, we we are creating a network of of diverse subjects with a wide audience. So if you're interested, again, email me at todd at roundtablemediagroup.com. If you'd like to maybe affiliate with our podcast group, you also could email me there at todd at roundtablemediagroup.com. Again, thanks for listening.